Oh, you're going to get into trouble for recording this, I wonder. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Rod. And we've got a really exciting guest this week, haven't we, Rod? We've got a guest. I love the guest ones. The I guest do ones like are my guest favourites. One. Yeah. And um, I've really been looking forward to this one because for one reason and another, it's taken a while to get there, but it's been well worth the wait. Yeah, this is this will be the, the, the first podcast for a, for a while, but we're back. And <laughs> uh, we've had time to look at what we do and not change a thing. So you may regret downloading this, but that's your There lot. you go. But but then again, if you've done the rest, you'll know exactly what to expect. I'm going to go off on a flight of fancy at some point. Andy's going to talk about a load of sociology stuff, and you'll come out of it possibly wiser or none the wiser. Who knows? Who knows? I, I, I suppose we ought to ask our guest about herself and um, what she would like to talk about this week. So, Anoop, say hello. Hello, uh, my name's Anoop. I have been kindly invited by Andy and Rod to this, what 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 uh, they promised me would be a very exciting podcast uh, today. They, they've built this up quite a lot, so I'm hoping that I can actually deliver now <laughs> for this. But I am a senior lecturer in marketing and consumption. Um, my areas, very much for research, the boring bit, um, looks very much at sort of marginalised uh, consumers, vulnerable consumers. Uh, I'm very much looking at transformative ways of including and um, co-creating with specific groups, um, thinking around ethics uh, and things like that, but also utilising in, in pedagogic practice, but also for research, thinking about emancipatory approaches, indigenized uh, research methodologies uh, and things like that. So trying to have more equitable platforms where we can both do teaching and research. And that's kind of where I'm coming from. It sounds absolutely fascinating. There's so many things in that we could unpick, but um, no. the first thing I, I, <laughs> I wanted to talk about, because I heard you speaking a few weeks ago, uh, that, that's why I was so keen to ask you to be on. You were talking about your teaching practices and particularly using disruptive practice um, and using that in terms of creating learning communities and safe spaces. Um, could you expand a little more on that? Yeah, I think one of the things that we found and again I've, I've i've worked at a number of different universities with different demographics of students um wide variety of students and 
we sort of with these kind of increasing calls for you know decolonizing curriculums thinking about especially within the context of the business school the kind of responsible management education um there needed to be a different way to really access um you know the student voice and it wasn't the student voice i.e tell us what you thought of the course it was about understanding getting the students to understand themselves within the context of the study or the subject under study if that makes sense so one of the approaches um that i that i kind of had a had a dabble in and tried and and have a paper under review at the moment on that is the use of poetry uh, as as emancipatory tool so particularly an iteration of that poetry which is slam so a very loose a very vernacular based kind of expression of the self and I utilized this during lockdown uh, funnily enough I thought I was really struggling to try and get students it's very difficult as it is in the online space to try and get students to uh, maybe collaborate cooperate respond talk even turn cameras on it was it was difficult but I think it was about week 10 into, into, the, into the module. And um, I'd, I'd, I'd been a fan of sort of spoken word poetry for a number of years. Um, and I found it fascinating, powerful, really, really passionate, you know, where these spaces were coming from. And I thought, I wonder if students could position themselves um, when we talk about youth cultures and subcultures as the topic for that week. I wonder if they can position themselves in that space and see themselves within the context of the, of the, the subject under study. And I kind of threw it out to them, created a Padlet page. It was completely anonymous. And I said, I, you know, part halfway through the, the seminar session, I said, I'd like you to spend 10 to 15 minutes. I want you to write about youth. That was the only thing I said. And, and part of the seminar session was sharing, I think it was George the Poet. He'd done a, a poem called Open for the Coca-Cola campaign during the, during the pandemic. So they knew the style. They knew, they knew what they were looking at in terms of poetry because, you know, with students, the minute you mention poetry, they think, oh, OK, we're talking Shakespearean sonnets here. We're doing, you know, oh, this is all, you know, very stuffy kind of middle class type. But I was like, no, no, it's not that. Um, it's a different type of expression. So I showed them examples. And to my surprise, the Padlet screen just exploded with contributions from students talking about um themselves as young people within the context of you know sort of education mental health um higher education money you know um career prospects a difficult period in time considering the pandemic and then where were they going to go um as, as young professionals so there was a whole there was a kind of an eruption of emotion that came through um and it really resonated because we had a chance to sort of look across uh, as a group, all of these poems, and I was fascinated to see that the kind of it was very raw, very unfiltered, and and just just sort of just thrown out. It, it just it just bubbled, and and that that's where for me I thought right that this is they've never been asked how they feel, and and that was something I thought. Tell us what you think is a very typical kind of thing that we say to students. Tell us what you think about this case study, or what do you think about this ad think asking them what they think versus asking them what they feel are two very different things in my in my opinion and I think they were told to feel um and and express that through through a, through a method and it and it when it worked so yeah I decided to explore that further how you said there was a lot of buy-in how universal mm. was that buy-in were there 
students were reticent to come forward was was there a yeah I think on that Padlet screen I had obviously I downloaded the um the kind of the whole Padlet kind of strip uh so to speak I'd say a good 80 percent of students had up had posted something in the seminar sessions yes um there were some that did not buy in there were some that did not contribute um but yeah I I, I was just overwhelmed with the contribution I didn't expect that students would engage in the activity um but yeah they did and and that was what surprised me is what was it that worked for this that allowed them something and it was again going back to the idea of spaces and facilitating spaces where students can feel the subject not just know about it but feel it and position themselves as part of it do you think sorry sorry, um do you think the fact they were doing it via a padlet doing it online do you think that anonymity oh completely helped do you think do you think this is something that 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 would ever translate to -to face-to-face teaching or do you think it's something that might only work online when they've got that barrier yeah the barrier was definitely a a huge kind of element in that that there was that anonymity that people could share very unfiltered voices about things I mean I'm glad to say there there weren't any profanities there was nothing negative over over my overarchingly negative Um, but the idea of anonymity did help because it allowed them that sort of freedom in a sense having said that um, when I was in the process of sort of writing up a paper on this very topic I had students come forward to record audios of their of their poetry so um, three or four students students came came forward and said we'd like to record our audio of our poem as part of a it was then a faculty presentation um but it's now evolved into um a formal manuscript uh for a journal so they did those that wanted to come forward did come forward i had requests at the end from a small pocket of students not not the not the majority but a small pocket saying it would have been great if we could have performed these it would have been great if we could have been in front of a room saying these in 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 the tone in the manner in which we wanted these to be shared um so there were pockets very clear pockets there for me that students wanted to share this but you're right rod it's um the anonymity was a huge uh, a huge benefit yeah I, because slam is very much a performance art isn't yes. it and yeah. it, it it's more than just the words yeah um that i i guess that was the way it was written that for those who who had buy-in and were aware of that that cultural phenomenon it it was a natural thing to do but it absolutely I mean it was I think one of the things that allowed I think the sense taking the sensibilities of stamp slam you're right that performance is ultimately the output it's performing the words it's performing the sentiment it's it's performing that powerful display of emotions but in the absence of that I think one of the things that I wanted to lift out of that was the freedom of expression was the 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 kind of there is no orthodoxy around this there's no rules there's no there's no parameters it's how you want to express that and the nice thing that I saw was the way that a number of students actually wrote their poems they they'd sort of Uh, presented the written poem in different ways, if that makes sense. So there was a line and maybe three gaps. So there was one poem that was so long on the actual thing, but it was to to reinforce emphasis on each of the lines that the student had written. But I think it reminds me of of obviously the body and the voice being very integral to slam. Um, 
But really, I think this is something that Woods had mentioned, and I'm going to reference here, apologies, my terrible academic self, but Woods talks about slams being the embodiment of an idea that art brings to people and not institutions and demands that their opinions be known and considered to be a genuine slam experience. So in the absence of performance, having that sort of um, that opinion, having that personal space being acknowledged and heard is a very big component of SLAM in terms of its slide. So again, we couldn't have gone full-blown presentation because it was exclusively online, but it's something that I would want to replicate in a face-to-face -face space if students were willing to do it. Um, yeah, you know, but again, it comes with its own pitfalls. The minute you you formalize something, other things start to happen. Um, and there was a very nice kind of loose, very organic way that some of this stuff just bubbled up really. Um, and I wouldn't want to lose that. So do you, is it the case that if, if you try to do a different performance style, sort of writing a, a, a short dialogue or even a, a beat poetry, to give another poetry example, it's the only other type of poetry I know. Um, do you think it wouldn't have worked quite so well because that rawness, that vulnerability is built into slam so much? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, one of the other reasons I'd embedded it is because the second piece of coursework for this module is a TED Talk. So it was about really tapping into their sort of inner feelings, their, their ideas and their concepts. And the, and the TED Talk really, really was drawing on personal experience. So within the context of the sociology of consumption, which is the, the subject matter that I'm teaching, they have to have they have to be able to understand and position themselves within the context of the material that they're understanding. So as an example, uh, one of the the submissions uh, last year off the top of my head was a, a student and she wrote uh, the title of her TED, TED talk was Can I Touch Your Hair? And she spoke about the experience of being the only black girl in an all white school. She spoke about racial racialization representation, representation of blackness within the media. She spoke about the fetishization of the black body. It was amazing. But she used her personal space in order to understand theoretically what the what the significance was of what was happening. Um, and I think this really lends itself well to 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 kind of students tapping in on their own feelings, on their own emotions, on their own personal spaces, because really they are the experts of themselves. They are, you know, they, they should be given that autonomy to say, well, actually you are the experts in this. This is what you know. And it's a valid contribution that knowledge isn't created from the textbooks. Knowledge is not created from the lecturer. Knowledge is co-created within what bell hooks would call that learning space, that collaborative learning space or a community of learners is the term that she uses. And I think we were trying to foster that in the seminar itself. I mean, we're all very aware that education is undergoing change mm -hmm. and that Rod and myself are the fossils in, in this conversation. Um, the white middle-aged bloke is um, thankfully not the norm or hopefully not the norm. Um, do you feel that this playing with stars is driven by Generation Z coming through or is it a case of Generation X are now in a position to, to experiment with with how they would have liked to learn when they were students? I think it's a little bit of 
both, to be honest, Andy. I think there's also, of course, you know, we've got digital, we've got an era of digital natives at the moment. They've got access to loads of information, much more information than what I had had when I first started out in academia. And obviously being a child where, you know, the internet was was this new space. It was like, what do we do with it? We didn't, you know, there was no social media. Um, mobile phones were still very much in their infancy, that kind of thing. So access to information and knowledge is 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 at your fingertips and i think the other thing is there's a there's a raised consciousness um, globally at the moment around voices that have been suppressed um, and if we're thinking of the edu of education as an institution that has a that has a huge role to play in nurturing and conditioning young people um, then there's a there's a kind of a, a, a collective revising now of how do we teach history how do we teach philosophy whose philosophy are we teaching but whose history are we teaching and I'm seeing elements Elements of this being sort of filtered through at school level um, as well. You know, the schools are now thinking of, you know, not history as a subject, but histories as a plural, as a multiple. Because again, history belongs to to those that wrote the history books, if that makes sense. So it's very skewed. There's not a, I don't believe that there is very much a, a real and authentic view of, of the trajectory of how, for example, me as, as a South Asian woman, how I've come to be here, you know, what was that trajectory? What was that history? How is that significant for my life, my very being and my identity? You know, how do I understand things versus somebody else? So I think there is a collective revising and, and it has been bolstered by um, obviously what's been happening globally. You know, yes, there are large movements you know you know me too black lives matter uh, but also the kind of things that are happening out in australia where there are references and acknowledgements of uh, indigenous communities the similar things happening out in south america as well where there is this push for indigenized understanding um, and and indigenization of research methodologies as well because fundamentally a lot of our theoretical mechanics stem from that kind of hierarchy, a very specific hierarchy, a very hegemonic approach that is written by groups of individuals who are seen to be quite homogenous historically, um, culturally, ethnically, racially um, as well. So I think it's that the dismantling has now suddenly started filtering around and going, well, actually, how do we teach, you know, this community of people you know and and something that a student actually wrote about very recently in assignment and it made me think and they said that the uh, she was talking about Nigeria and her family's background in in one of her assignments and she said it always baffles me why we were forced to learn English but then I realized that unless I learn English I don't have access to knowledge and that in itself is quite a profound statement to say well are we saying that indigenized understanding of knowledge indigenized philosophies are, are not as credible um, and I think we've all I think there's a collective refiguring now of what's the role of education how powerful it is in in kind of conditioning young people but also what happens later um, when when students leave when young people leave these institutions I, I I've recently come across exactly the same thing but from a a different angle. I've been marking um, systematic literature review reports um, and non-English based papers have been one of the exclusion criteria. 
and the justifications for exclusion have been really interesting along those similar lines. And it is a very colonial attitude. Yeah. And um, it really brought me up short. Um, yeah. And and these other ways of knowing, other ways of feeling. Yeah. Um, the I came across something only just this week that we are programmed to have five senses because that is the North European mm. norm. Whereas if we look at how other cultures understand their senses, they, they, there's a lot more of that. I exist in this space that is, is considered as a sense. So as a, a European sensibility, we need to readdress an awful lot of issues in terms of knowledge creation and knowledge understanding. I'm not sure I can I can I can add anything here as the <laughs> the, the, the the solitary mathematician in the in the thing that's just sitting there going numbers are fine <laughs> you can't have a go at numbers but then you, you you know even even something like mathematics has got a colonialism mm-hmm. to it in that there are we use the Arabic numeral system we use a lot of um you know a lot of the of, of the big mathematical yeah changes came from the came from asia yeah but it's still seen as quite a, a western discipline yeah which is which is weird because you know the majority of my lecturers were russian yeah. which is you know um but it's still seen as a very sort of westernized discipline. So it shows how ingrained that that colonialism is. So that the given how deeply ingrained it is, can we ever break it? Hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking about, about the 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 pushback with the the you know, because I'm based in Bath, we're near Bristol, the Edward Colston statue, which quite rightfully came down. In my opinion, my opinions represent me and not the, the institutions that I represent. And the, the pushback is well, we can't rewrite history. Well, taking down a statue ain't rewriting history, mate. Mm. It's not celebrating an idiot. Um, and, and all of this. And I, and I just wonder whether there, do you think there will be this, this pushback from the um, white middle class male? Two thirds of this call, not mm. us personally, but <laughs> um, <laughs> from, from that from that sector of society that that feels like, oh, hang on, we're losing some power here. Mm. I think historically there'll always be that, and I, and I think going back to your your example of mathematics, let's think about scientific racism, for example, measurements, averages. What was the norm? These were all quantified. If anything fell outside of that quantification, it was seen an anomaly. Um, so again, there's a lot of mathematics that was around the period of the eugenics, for example. You know, there's a lot of examples we've got from from Nazi Germany as well, and things like that. So there's a whole range of things where mathematics and numerics were utilised to reinforce hegemonic order as as part of that. Um, but I think historically there'll always be some pushback from somewhere because there is no one size fits all um you know there was something that that again and again I learned so much from my students they're amazing um there was a a thing a student said we were talking about you know what do the terms uh equality diversity and inclusion mean to you 
And we started sort of grappling with well, what the meaning is. What exactly does that mean? Um, and he just said, just plainly, he said, when we really have this, we're no longer going to need these words. And that was it. And I kind of thought, actually, I get where you're coming from. He said, shouldn't we be doing this anyway? Why is it that we're decolonizing? I mean, I, I've got a bit of a, a love-hate relationship with the term. I'm not a fan, but I, I agree with you, Rod. I think, you know, the pulling down of statues, yes, it's it's a symbolic move as opposed to a, we're rewriting history because we can't, but then their purpose and their very being should remind us. It should be more of a lesson, really, of, of, of those kinds of atrocities. Um, but at the same time, it isn't that we you know, it shouldn't also be a blame game, um, you know, one race versus the other race. But we all know that centres of knowledge production and how that has come about, you know, the, the big journals there, your North American, European, you know, in many, many, many disciplines, you know, people are wanting to work in the United, in the North America or Europe, uh, in academia, because it's still seen to be the centre of the knowledge base. Um, how that's come about has been hundreds and hundreds of years, which we know. But I think we it's really I think it comes down to, to acknowledging the multiplicity of voice within any discipline um, and acknowledgement, listening to that voice, but learning to listen very differently as well to say that, well, actually, I, I, you know, I, I still go to conferences, I still see pushback from scholars saying, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, you know, the, the ethnic voice or the minoritized voice is still an add on to the kind of, you know, the bulk of, of, of that particular discipline. It's not the central component of it. Um, but it's it's something that's going to take a, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I don't believe that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very practical and realistic, but the steps uh, that are being taken at the moment are good because I didn't realize, I mean, obviously, when I look at my student body and I look at the demographic of my student body, over 53% of the student body are non-white. Um, you know, they, many of the students are first generation coming into the university. Um, they don't have that background. So again, you know, I, I realized how I was teaching a very in a very specific way when I first started out at university and I thought why am I not referring to other voices why am I not you know this doesn't resonate with me it doesn't resonate with the people in the room so who am I teaching about and for whom you know where is that voice coming from and I think when you start questioning these things then we start finding these pockets I think and it, and it is that collective questioning for me it is that collective consciousness that, that needs to exist in order for us to do things differently to go back to possibly closer to where we started, <laughs> but, but to tie in with this, do you feel that as educators, we need a forum where we can give our students voice, mm. where we have a very loose assessment criteria boundary to where we want things to go and just being able to give people voice? Yeah. I, I mean, I, obviously it's important, but. I'm thinking in terms of how we do it and, and, and the purpose it would serve. Yeah, um, I feel it needs to be embedded as a democratic activity for any institution. I think we, we need to go back. Um, it, it's a really, we've got so many 
issues with the institution by by and, and I mean the university you know increased marketization we're creating products we're, we've got consumers not learners we've got a complete refiguring of the HE landscape that I you know a, a good proportion of it I don't agree with um, we should be spaces um, and places where we can facilitate um, an organic expression of, of voice, of understanding of the world, where we question, we innovate very organically. But again, there's so many structures, rules, regulations, guidelines, um, things that we come up against. I mean, for me to change a small part of my assessment component requires I jump through at least 20 different hurdles. Um, how can we have that fluidity back, that organic, you know, ability to sort of teach and 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 this funnily enough it's a, it's probably a bad example but we had a fire alarm go off some months back in the in, and that too multiple times um the seminar group and me we just obviously we, we filtered out waited in the the kind of allocated area and I just continued teaching and we just stood there we sat outside and it was probably one of the most liberating things in I've done in a while I thought actually we're not in a room we don't have to sit at the desk, at the chair. You know, we don't have to sit in a certain way. We were in a circle. And that completely changed the dynamic, the conversation that we were having. Um, excessive formalization, excessive structuring, I think it always works against any kind of method where you're trying to be much more loose, much more organic, much more free and flowing. Um, but yeah, we, I think rather than giving voice, as long as we have pockets um, where we can facilitate these spaces, where we facilitate, we, we do nothing more than facilitate. The voice is there. We're just facilitating a space for it to happen and to take place. I think that's the only way we can kind of work within the existing kind of neoliberal structures that we're kind of grappling with at the minute. I think Andy and I's eyes lit up when you talked about moving people into a circle because we were um, renowned, probably the right, notorious is probably the better word, for moving tables around in the room mm -hmm. and forcing students out of their comfort zone, um, sometimes with, with good results, sometimes not. And I, and, I, and I think that idea of changing the space, mm -hmm. like you say, is very powerful in terms of changing how you approach the learning. Yeah. So a circle drives, a drives, drives discussion. Presenting from the back of the room terror, terrifies those kids that mm. sit at the back. Um, and, and, and it can change the, 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 di the dynamics of it. So I think that's, that's a really powerful takeaway from, mm. from this discussion is that we, we are constrained by regulations we are constrained by 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 registry rightfully or wrongfully i mean i've worked with registry long enough to know that how hard all these guys work and 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 that we need this this element of structure because god knows a lot of academics aren't capable of putting their own structure on um I, i'm not talking about any, any academics in, in particular before i get <laughs> lots, of, lots of very angry emails from colleagues and, and and former colleagues saying how dare you have a go at me because i can't organize anything um, and you used to do it for me. Um, <clears throat> moving on, um, but but I, but I, I think I think I think it's it's now we've lost the train of thought. Um, it's good, but I think it's good for the, for the for us to work within those boundaries as much as possible to bring a very different learning experience for for the 
for the for the students because and and it goes back to that non-Caucasian, non-university bound students that that, be, that who's found to be going to university for generations mm. are very benefited by the current regulations. They're very tailored towards those students and students from different backgrounds can be very limited by those by those regulations, by the emphasis on book learning, by the emphasis on you need to do X amount of hours of study, irrespective of what sort of family issues you've got at home type type thing. So, so I, I think we need to do what we can to, to, to draw those learners in by putting all the all the different ways of learning that annoy our more formal yeah. colleagues. But I think that's a very good thing. Yeah. It, disrupting the accepted narrative for me is what education is about. Disrupting, questioning, reaching your own conclusions. Um, and if we can facilitate that, we're doing our job. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's, I'd love to see more of it to be quite honest um and again when we've got there's so many issues at play here we have staff that may be overworked they are teaching excessive numbers of hours we've got casual staff hourly paid staff you know um we don't always have the time to um you know sort of think quite deeply about pedagogic practice we're kind of thrown into this catapult of right there's your next your next class you've got this lecture to sort out you've got that session to sort out I think we are restricted in a number of ways um, as well but if these pockets can exist I think that's a step in the right direction. So you when we were talking about colonies earlier you said that you don't think there'll be a, a change in in society within within our lifetimes do you think that education is going to is, is going to do these are these little pockets going to be enough do you think to 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 change education or do you think that the dominant lecture-based approach is just there to stay because because universities are built around it and we can't get out of it yeah, I think I think there will be shifts towards that pupil teacher dynamic. I think that does need to break down um, quite a lot. Um, the word lecture itself doesn't no longer holds positive connotations. I think even the the kind of uh, definitions of of le oh don't lecture me. You know, we know it has that negative that kind of oh someone's droning on about something. Um, but I think more we need to have collectives as opposed to the lecture you know we, we we sort of try to and I don't know how we do that I don't really have an answer for it but how do we level that playing field how do we get rooms of people where we're I'm not stood at the front of a lecture theatre and I've got students looking looking down at me like I have this body of knowledge that they need to know about I, I want them to interact I want them to engage I, I want them to be participant in these conversations otherwise it's like having a monologue at the front we've all been there you know it's like having a monologue at the front of the room and you're lucky if half of them are, are engaged enough uh, to want to participate in that conversation but I think 
I think physical space has a huge amount to do with it. I think you're absolutely right. I think there becomes a natural division in a lecture theatre. And I'm talking about traditional lecture theatres. You know, we've got this platform for somebody and then we all look up. Um, it's, it's, it's divisive, um, I think, in many ways. But, yeah, I, I do believe that there are there are enough spaces and pockets where if if the next generation of you know academics is coming along and is very aware of these issues um i think that that change can be there but it's gradual it will be gradual and it i don't think it would completely overthrow the kind of lecture uh element or or idea um but i think with yeah technology has been doing quite a lot of stuff over the past couple of years as, as we've seen um you know i've not done lectures for two years now um, they've all been online um, and the seminars have been face to face. So, yeah. And I find that exciting. Yeah. Mm, me too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, COVID has made us change and there's yeah. a lot of negative press about the changes we've had to make, mm. suggesting that it, it it's wrong and we should go back to what is effectively, as you said before, the white male hegemony. Mm. Um, and the different ways of offering information, the different ways that we can access, access it, um, and the different ways that we, we can now assess people as well, different ways yes. of submitting, um, as we, we briefly talked about earlier on. Um, it, for me, it feels very much we're in the middle of change. Yeah, it's it's happened. I think it's happening. Um, but, I, I, you know, the, these these, you know, what they call them sort of like drops in the ocean, they're still good. They'll create the ripples that they need. Um, and I think, you know, the more that discussions like these take place, I think the more people will be aware of their own practice and maybe try to start doing things a little more differently. And, and I was I was excited about what was happening for the same reasons, Andy, to be fair, that it was a it forced us to rethink if that makes sense like everybody's told go back to the books you know revise your module think about it this really forced us to think very differently about what we were teaching but also how we were we were teaching this how to engage um I self-taught myself so much in that year that I'm better for it to be fair um and I'm, and I'm better positioned now I'm thinking oh I can now blend elements of that online learning with the face-to-face because -face, I know what's working better so I think we're better for it dare I say apologies to any colleagues who may be listening to this I know it was hell <laughs> it, it was and if you'd have said to me two and a half years ago that I would actually be pushing back against going to face-to-face -to -face only yeah. I'd have been the first that would have um, needed picking up off the floor <laughs> But it was it was difficult. It was yeah. a horrible, horrible time. But I think we needed it, to be honest. I, th I think nothing would have changed without that push because there was there's always the it's worked for X amount of time, usually measured in hundreds of years. Why do we need to change it? Well, we lived in caves for we have electricity years. nowadays. Yeah, we have electricity, you know. <laughs> add, add in old thing that we no longer do for x amount of time that is no reason to keep doing it so i i think it was for all the horrible nastiness that came out of covid i, th I think it, it's one exciting positive yeah i just hope it 
it continues. Mm. Mm. We've all got a lot to think about. I can see from everyone's faces that we're... (laughs) We've we've all gone very sort of... I wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to get into trouble for recording this? I wonder. (laughs) (laughs) That's our normal state. (laughs) It's the normal state, yeah. Close to the wire and sharing it if anyone comes across it. These these opinions are our own. They represent the the universities we we represent in the... In the slightest, I adore all of my colleagues. <laughs> it's a Both shame this is this, there's no there's no video on this. <laughs> so exactly because no one can see the sincerity in my face. Exactly, exactly, my point. exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I think at, at that point, let's um, let's thank Anoop and say um, let's hope we repeat it very soon. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Thank you. No, thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Step and find out, 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 step and find out